I'm Dr. Sharon Blackie, and I'd like to welcome you to my podcast, The Hackitude Sessions. In this series of conversations centered around my book, Hackitude, Reimagining the Second Half of Life, I offer you conversations with women who can sprinkle a few breadcrumbs to help us track our journey through the dark woods of the second half of life. Hackitude is a radical rewriting of the decades ahead for all women in their mid and elder years, beginning with the reclaiming of menopause as a liberating alchemical moment from which to shift into your chosen, authentic and fulfilling future. You can find out more about Hackitude, the book and the membership program at hackitude.org. So I'm delighted to be joined today by Hannah MacDonald, who is the publisher at September Publishing, which happens also to be my publisher. So I'm particularly excited to talk to Hannah today about Hagitude and her experience of menopause and getting older, and also what it is like to be an older woman in publishing. So Hannah, welcome. Hi, it's lovely to be here. So after, just a quick bio, for Hannah, after 20 years of publishing at Andre Deutsch, Random House and Harper Collins, where she was head of the Collins List, Hannah founded September. She specialises in a creative approach to shaping books with debut authors, as well as brands and personalities. She's published multiple top 10 bestsellers across memoir, media, sport, history, and led many startup projects from fiction lists to apps. She's also herself the author of two well-received novels, The Sun Road and Juliana Kiss, and a winner of a Betty Trask Award for first novels. Starting an independent publisher, she says, was a natural extension of a lifelong escapist pleasure in buying, reading, and above all, sharing good books. So, Hannah, why why September? Why, why leaving big publishing for a little company of your own? It was a combination of practicality, necessity, and sort of gut instinct, I'd say, but the, the, the practical side that precipitated it, or the practical events that precipitated it, were that I was made redundant. And I guess this was when I was 40, early 40s, and I had been working part-time, three days a week as a publisher, which is a little bit unusual, to be running a list um, part-time and uh, ultimately that wasn't what worked for the company anymore so I was made redundant and that was okay if rather humiliating actually I think I think it's not easy being made redundant. I'm sure. I didn't particularly enjoy the process but the end result was okay which was um, uh, the chance to think again and uh, there were some practical things to think about, like the fact that I had two primary school aged kids and um, didn't want to work full time yet. And I was aware that that was going to place a limitation on my career. Um, uh, it had already kind of partly got us to this point where I've been made redundant and I wasn't sure that it was going to get necessarily easier growing a career and being part time. And because I had children slightly later uh, in life, I'd also been working quite a long time in the same industry and had seen, uh, therefore, a, a 
good healthy variety of you know meeting rooms boardrooms strategy sessions um group bonding sessions and i just couldn't quite face doing all the same things again just for a different company and i just couldn't stop this urge to work within books and share books even though i did want to write more myself and i, I had two young kids so I sort of crept into starting September. It was a gut instinct that I still wanted to work with authors and share books. Um, and I kept my expectations of our output quite low at the beginning. So it was sort of an, a few, a handful of books each year. And whilst the list remains small, it's nevertheless grown because once you start looking for good books to share, you can't just say, well, I'll only do that a couple of times a year. It becomes all consuming. It becomes a, 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 a full time job. <laughs> and um, the list has grown a bit like a, a bit like a child. Um, and it has been very rewarding to, 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 to watch a to watch a sort of um, an entity like a collection of writing and writers and photographers and artists to watch that collection of people in the collection of their output grow and grow. So it's 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 proved immensely challenging, but always rewarding. And um, as you can see, it came from quite a practical need at the beginning, you know. Yeah, I'd, I've always had the impression, and it may just be because, you know, you see more photographs of women in things like the bookseller, that publishing is a woman-dominated industry. Is that true or is that only at certain levels? I, you know, I can't quote statistics, but I reckon, and I, it certainly used to be that there were more uh, more women working in publishing than men, um, so the to a degree so there were a few more women than men working in publishing but it certainly shifts as um, people progress and they spend longer working in publishing and it is um, certainly the case that that ratio changes as you move up the management levels in publishing that said I have worked for two different CEOs, female CEOs in publishing, and uh, feel grateful to have done so. So I work for ultimately, you know, my boss's boss was Gail Reebuck, Dame Gail Reebuck, who ran Random House before it merged with Penguin and was practically uh, helpful to a younger woman like me and get, was was quite happy to give sort of quite practical kind of, you know, um, guidance and mentoring advice. And um, and was also, you know, inspiring. And also Victoria Barnsley at HarperCollins, another female CEO. So it is open to female uh, senior leaders, but it isn't. The ratio changes. So there is still that issue. Yeah. OK, so I understand from from what you've just said and also from knowing you that you do have a, a genuine passion for books and for publishing as a process. But clearly you are. I think about 50 now. Yeah, 51. 51. And well, uh, 51 on <laughs> 51 in a few weeks, but I've got there. Do you know what I mean? I am, <laughs> I'm already there, really. <laughs> but it's quite a, a huge responsibility and a huge amount of work to run your own independent publishing company. Is that something that you are comfortable with at this stage in your life when a lot of women are beginning to think about slowing down a tiny bit, particularly post-menopause? Well. I, you know, that sort of the worry about paying things is never particularly pleasant. And 
whilst it's not always there, it's always at the back of your mind, even with a successful independent company in a in a bonus bumper year, there's always the thought of, well, there's next year and next year may not be quite so lucky. You know, so that even in a good year, um, that worry is there. And of course, we've been through a couple of quite difficult years with um, the pandemic and that sort of fiscal responsibility is 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 not particularly pleasant but I do have a slightly weird ability to not think about that too much and that's not necessarily <laughs> healthy but it's quite useful you know I'm not sure that that I you know I'm not a I I, I would never be described if I were transplanted into a, a bigger company I would never be offered the chief financial officer role um, <laughs> because I think I what I bring to the table is not that bring other things to the table and I have um with uh the help of another woman who previously started a publishing company has been mentoring me I've brought in some financial help and some guidance and some rigor and some kick up the asses and some um encouragements and some sheer practical financial savvy so I brought that in um but I do have yes the ability to to Weirdly, it's not the it's not the um, the financial side that would keep me awake at night, and that a sort of slightly slightly cavalier attitude towards where the next budge of money coming from is quite helpful for for an entrepreneur. I think <laughs> um, I, it, you know that only takes you so far, and everything can collapse if you carry that so far. So you can't rely on that. But I think. You know there are a lot of risks in starting new things, and honestly, if you if you thought too much about them, you wouldn't start it. So, I'm sure that's true. Yeah, and we'll get on to menopause and all things haggitude in a minute. But I'm sure that a lot of the people listening to this, because they're listening to a podcast by a writer, are equally fascinated by the process of publishing. So, what did you want September to be, in terms of the kind of books that you selected? kind of books you're looking for I suppose the the kind of list that you're trying to build I wanted September to be a list that produced books with a clarity of purpose so that means that they're if they're telling a story and they're written to engage and entangle you that they deliver it in the best possible way I wanted beautiful books, books that were produced beautifully, but also art books. Uh, um, I'm very interested by art artists and also the art world, actually, which is weird, but wonderful in some ways. And I wanted it to be a company that focused very heavily on the very special thing that publishers do, which is the thing that Amazon can't do, that Apple can't do, the thing that Facebook will never try to do, it, I wanted it to be a publishing company that focused very hard on that birthing process of uh, idea to mid midpoint delivery to finished entity to sharing and being seen by others. So that creative process and at its heart, publishing is about people producing something deeply felt, deeply thought through and intended to last for a wider market. And that process of thinking it up and either writing it or creating it and then putting it out there needs help. It needs supporters and it needs the right people there to help it out. And that that, that an editor and then a carefully chosen team around an editor, that relationship 
between creator and editor and those other few carefully chosen people is really special and publishing is historically good at it and it's a very serious responsibility i mean it, it, it ultimately you know those those relationships are are can get quite knotty and political and 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 historic in terms of you think about sort of censorship or you think about the dangers of writing in some ways those are very important relationships and whilst we may not ever have distribution services within our own companies like amazon we will only we, that is the thing we're really good at. So I wanted a company that focused on the thing that publishing is really supposed to be brilliant at, and that seemed also a good way to try and survive in a in a in a in a disrupted industry. You know, lots of industries have been disrupted over the last twenty years, and publishing certainly was being disrupted. And you say, I think, on your website that you focus on um, a sort of author-focused approach to publishing, and you do. From my experience, certainly. Why why that? Why that change? Because you don't normally associate that kind of approach with large publishing houses. Not so much, unless they're huge sellers, in which case I'm sure it's true. Yeah. It Well, the, the, having written a couple of novels myself, I was aware painfully aware really it's 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 difficult writing it's really difficult <laughs> it's difficult sometimes it's like pushing a boulder uphill isn't it and, it and is. doing it with sort of you know painful hands and a, and, a, and, a, and a sort of unfavorable wind and it's hard and sometimes it is sheer sort of although it's not physically laborious it does sometimes feel like that you have to sit down and find some words before anything like a flow or getting into the creative zone approaches so I was very aware of that having written some novels and I was very aware of that imbalance that you'll spend years creating this body of work um, and of course then the people you work with might have at least 20 on the go possibly 200 on the go depending on what kind of company it is and then that you may quite possibly be passed from the one person who you know really understands your book to other people who don't necessarily understand your book. And then some of them might leave. And then some of them might have been dumped with a whole new backlist to look after and don't have any time to think about your book. At which point you think, I've spent years on this thing and I don't know anyone who's even thinking about it. And it's difficult. And that just seemed like in the desire for growth, some of the metrics of the way teams and processes were managed had gone a bit wrong. So uh, it was about trying to do the best by the authors and their books in the name of producing a better book and selling more because there's no we're no good to public uh, to your to authors if we can't get the books out there if we can't find readers i mean it's it relationships and communication is really important but we do have a duty <laughs> to try and get books out there you know to try and sell books we're no good if we can't do that but my feeling was that authors knew a great deal more about marketing their own books than we um within the traditional industry structures sort of allowed for and that actually to have an author who really likes their cover and who has found the process of um, being edited and published enjoyable is going to be much more willing to work hard at publicizing the book and that if every if 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 all approaches are made in a more all work is done in a more collaborative way then actually it's a much more effective team author and publisher and indeed now over the last sort of you know 10 years a lot of authors do generate a lot of their own sales by um, through social media, for instance, or through events. 
And it's a lot of author connections who actually sometimes get the best traditional coverage. So, you know, publishers can't kid themselves that they're the ones doing all the work. Actually, authors are doing an awful lot of the work already on the marketing and publicity side. So we really needed to bring, I felt, authors into the processes much more. And yeah, I th you're a very good example of that, Sharon, in that you have built your own community around your work. Yeah, and Tagitude is the fourth book that I have had with September, much to my great pleasure. It's always been a pleasurable process. But some people might have heard me talk about this before, but let's just step back a little way to If Women Rose Rooted, because we first spoke, you and I, back in, I think it would have been about the summer of 2014, when my then agent had pitched you a book on place and belonging, kind of roughly, which wasn't quite there. You weren't entirely sure that that it was going to work, but you suggested we have a talk anyway. And if Women Rose Rooted came out of that, can you remember how that how that happened and what you were thinking at the time? Oh yes, definitely. Um, I was at the very beginning of um, finding authors to work with and authors who also were looking either for a, a good start point um, within trade publishing as opposed to academic publishing or self-publishing, or, but also looking for authors who might be looking for a fresh start. And your proposal on belonging came into the inbox and um, I just thought it was very beautifully written and I thought the areas were very interesting and questions of place and belonging, actually, whether we call them that, whether we use those words or not, they matter hugely to everyone and uncertainty about your place or how much you belong or your uh, rootedness affects all of us and I, I wonder whether at that particular point I was particularly interested in it because commissioners often end up commissioning things that they're interested in at that moment in the same way that you know writers end up writing things that they have just caught their interest and I also had a background in publishing that made me aware that there were deep pockets of interest around myth and folklore and also around Celt Celticism, Celtic mythology, Celtic history, and also Celtic uh, landscapes. And I could see that within the proposal. So then we spoke, obviously. And it was interesting, wasn't it? Because back then, really writing about myth and folklore, particularly anything with the world Celtic in it, tended to be a little bit dismissed by the mainstream. Oh, yeah. We couldn't get it into Waterstones. Do you remember? I do. <laughs> I mean, honestly, we did. Um, I mean, we did a decent print run of the first book because I knew there was a market. We could see the people who were interested in your work and your writing. And I knew, as I say, from previous um, lists that I'd worked alongside, as a wonderful list called Rider, um, the very practical list called Vermilion at Andre Deutsch. Also, there was some older publishing around celtic mythology we knew there was a market so we did a decent sort of you know first edition print run and it sold out really quickly and we hadn't even been able to get it into waterstones and i remember meeting with the salespeople, and they just said that their feedback had been that it was a bit oh just a bit sort of a bit too spiritual a bit too green a bit too earthy you know <laughs> i thought yeah because I I know the buyers in that particular period. I knew the buyers and, and and it just wasn't up their street either. 
and they hadn't yet seen the market for it. Green publishing, as it was called, wasn't particularly profitable. I mean, it's only, we're only talking how long ago? Six? Eight six, years. Eight years ago. Oh, oh, well, no, when it was published, oh, it was 2016, oh, wasn't it? Six yeah. years, yeah. Six years ago, yeah. So we're not talking light years ago. We're only talking six years ago. But it hadn't been terribly profitable, uh, this area of publishing. And the kind of interest in folklore and mythology was still seen as niche. And, of course, it took, you know, Stephen Fry writing about um, Greek gods, Neil Gaiman uh, writing about Norse gods to actually make um, some of the more traditional booksellers think, oh, right, oh, okay, maybe people are interested in the old stories. And then, of course, um, when we sold out of, of um, sorry, if Women Rose Rooted in the first edition so quickly and we did the B format, then we did manage to persuade Waterstones to take some because we showed them how many had been sold through the market, through other retailers, through online retailers. <laughs> uh, and they were like, oh, OK, all right, maybe we'll try it. <laughs> So, yeah, it was hard. It was seen as a bit niche. But um, if Women Rose Rooted, I think, was one of, well, probably, it was the first of a new generation of women writing about their connection to landscape and framing that within a longer, older history of storytelling and of female guardianship of the land. And often... And this new generation of books, of which If Women Rose Rooted was, I think, one of the, the first, have a strong personal strand. And now, of course, there is a, there is a great flourishing of writing in this way. And, you know, the, there had been a greater interest in writing about the landscape, you know, from Robert McFarlane's books, mm. a much greater writing about the landscape. So it was a natural progression, a natural sort of circle for for books to come back to listening to female voices i mean let's not forget things like silent spring or oh i am now going to forget the name the wonderful writer who wrote the land the geologist who was um henry moore's partner um, oh uh, ja uh, jaquette um yes no, hawkins hawkins or something yes yeah the Land is an extraordinary piece of writing and uh, that along Silent Spring and alongside Braiding Sweetgrass by Robin Wall Kimmer are very good examples of, of, of classic, brilliant writing which brings both nature, personal story and mythology and landscape into this pot. So it's, it, it's, not, a, it's not a brand new thing, but writing and publishing and media attention, of course, goes in in phases, in sort of circles. And we now are back at a point where uh, I think it's a sort of a blossoming of writing and publishing in this area. And If Women Rose Rooted seemed to me to be ahead of its time, and certainly we found that in the trade, but it's, it's, it's you know, it sold more in year four than it did in year one. It's a book that has found its readers and grown and grown, and it's been very rewarding. And it's very interesting how much things, as you say, have changed with Haggitude six years on. It's been very much easier. I mean, it is never easy, so I don't mean that it's just a uh, a walkover, but it has been easier to attract attention in in the mainstream media and in in bookstores. So it's something really has shifted quite significantly, yeah. hasn't it? Yeah, I mean, you and I have had plenty of conversations over the last year where we go, oh, good, right, okay, good. Well, that's different to before good so and so is interested this is this is happening um it has felt hasn't it a, a less of a struggle to get mainstream media to understand 
how many people are, are, are wanting to think about both the old stories, but also their role within the guardianship of the land and the importance of that to their own personal stories, to their own authenticity and health, emotional, mm. spiritual, physical health. Yeah. Yeah. So Hagitude, um, I remember that you weren't entirely sure about the title I proposed to ah. you. Is <laughs> that that word hag that um, that so many people are ambivalent about? Yeah, of course it is. I mean, you know, I'm 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 very happy to 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 admit that I was a little bit like, oh crikey. Um, but you know what? I think um, strong titles and strong visuals and sort of you know provocative ideas are better than ones that don't gather attention around them so there's an interesting person I know who runs a <clears throat> modern art gallery in Sweden and he once said that I was asking him you know how, how how can you tell whether some of the work that you look at is good or not because it's it, it you know modern art is challenging in that way sometimes and he said well what I'm interested more interested by is when I is the reaction to have to things and if I have a reaction where I wince slightly or I'm not sure or something isn't, is something's bothering me, he said, that's when I think things are really interesting. <laughs> that's when I think, okay, okay, there's something here. So uh, in the spirit of, of saying, actually, you know what, it's best, it's best to say to people, okay, here's an idea, here's a thought. Uh, you might not like it, but let's let's think about it. In that spirit, I thought Haggerty was a good title. But yeah, uh, I know that, you know, when I've talked about the book with other other female friends, not with professionally, but just talked about it, some of them go, oh, mm, um, Christ, are we there? Oh, God. <laughs> uh, and then some of them think, yeah, bring it on. I love that. I love the idea of owning it and owning my my kind of owning my aging and taking putting a hefty dollop of punkish attitude onto it, you know. Mm. It is it is a curious word because clearly it is one of those words that has been repurposed as so many by the good old patriarchy as a really really negative word you know so for a lot of people if they hear the word hag they immediately assume either frail ugly or wicked the wicked old witch and you know if you look back at the stories where words like hag are used that wasn't really what it was about it was about power and it was about older women standing outside the system with a power that derived from within them not by relationship to anybody else particularly to a man and i guess i've always imagined that that the word is threatening precisely because of that because it relates to a woman who is absolutely kind of sufficient in herself and doesn't require to be defined by the system. And that's what all of those women are, you know, the ones that come riding out of the forest to tell the knights like Parseval all of the ways in which they've gone wrong and how they need to buckle up and, and get the job done. They're outside of the system. They're challenging the system. Mm -hmm. So that's what the word means to me, the word hag. And so I quite like it for that. But I do see that you have to overcome all of that long cultural conditioning. That makes me to think two things. It makes me think, first of all, what... <laughs> Was there another word for mild old ladies who came out of the woods then? Or did they just not mention <laughs> the stories? Do you know what I mean? Was, was, was there a word for kind of old women who you knew had some um, agency or, or potential 
um, and, and hag was used for them. But was there a different one for what people who were simply frail or, or, or you know, vulnerable? I don't know. No, I don't know. I mean, witch, you know, we see exactly the same issue with witch, don't we? But there are some really strong, which I quote in the book, some really strong medieval texts who define witches, you know, just as, as, as absolutely disgusting physical specimens. And I think there is also an element of disgust that comes in there that that people found old women disgusting. You know, they, they didn't they didn't any longer fit the cultural archetype of beauty. And so I think all of that just became all tied up. But no, I don't think there is a particularly kind word for for, for older women. It's a strange thing, isn't it? No. Well it's it's more than strange. It's disturbing. And it it's an opportunity in a way, isn't it? Because it's no point in saying that actually, you know, it, it, there's a kind of a time or a period in history where actually older women were treated with respect and dignity. I'm not sure that it's quite that straightforward, is it? No. Um, I think that fear of, um, well, that fear of death that actually has made uh, visible ageing um, frightening to so many mm. has always been present. But the power of those who have survived into old age and were therefore potent with knowledge and secrets must have been frightening in a different period in a way that it necessarily be frightening now so it's an opportunity isn't it you know i mean as all sorts of things are thrown up into the air in the 21st century all sorts of definitions thrown up into the air it's one it's a it's an opportunity to be able to kind of try and try and chip away at that you know youth equals beauty age equals it's not just about looks is it age equals uh, it's repulsive it's almost like a repulsion isn't it that people feel yes but I, and i'm thinking also of the kind of not just about the, the the physicality of it about also the kind of things that are easy to deride about aging which are about uh, the ways in which you keep your house or the ways in which you uh keep your handbag or the ways in which you um move through life the sort of there's a there's a age equals something to be slightly derided yeah mm. um, yeah yeah and and for your sins you are very much more familiar with the content of Haggadude than most of the people that I've been speaking to on the podcast so far since it's only just come out yeah. those particular stories that I talk about the archetypal hags in the book the tricksters the truth tellers the fairy godmothers and so on which of them which of them most reflects you do you think your your personal inner hag well i've always looked forward to being a grandmother even as a child i looked forward to being a grandmother i always had quite a sort of strong imagery in my head around being a grandmother even when i was little and i had a sort of stronger sort of fantasy about what kind of grandmother I would be the night I was able to access about being a mother hmm. so for that reason I suspect I'm quite drawn to the sort of fairy godmothers and and grandmothers chapter which is about bridging generational gaps mm -hmm. uh, in many ways that chapter isn't it it is yeah we don't do that very well, though. I mean, clearly individual grandmothers do it very well. But as a culture, we don't, apart from within families, we don't seem to have very many mechanisms for bridging those generational gaps, particularly well, for women who don't have kids, you know, in a family. No, to we don't. Into. 
we don't we don't have the sort of you know our sort of cultural social i'm talking about i'm talking about kind of british anglican culture christian culture perhaps rather than anglican i'm talking about that rather than necessarily you know modern britain because i do think this is this is not the case for 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 other communities and mm-hmm. other faiths within the uk yeah but certainly within I've always been struck by there being a lack of place, space, time moment at which generations um, mingle. Obviously, there's Christmas, but that's a that's that's I'm t- we're talking then about domestic settings. Um, I suppose Christmas is an example, perhaps. But I remember being very struck by being in Spain about sort of twenty no about ten years ago, and it was a Saint's Day of some kind or another, and there was there was sort of low level festivities in the way that you know you come across in Europe in rather a wonderful way, and there was a group of oh I'd say middle and definitely older um, uh, men and women uh, doing quite a traditional dance within the, the the town square in in northern Spain. And uh, we were sitting, watching, enjoying the music and 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 this fairly traditional sort of Spanish dance. And uh, also really interested then to see a large crew of boys on their bikes come up and they watched for a while. And we watched them watching and they got off their bikes and they joined in and they knew all the steps. And they joined in and they did their traditional dance with all the grannies and granddads. And this continued and on and on. It wasn't just a one-off. It wasn't about everyone joining in the can-can for five seconds. You know, it was it was, it was was grand. And I thought, I'm not sure I'd see that here in the UK. That made me a bit sad. Yeah. Um, so, yes, we don't have quite enough places where that happens. And I, I was very fond of my grandmother's. They were the ones who stuck around. The, they, they survived the longest, my grandmothers. And I think I, I would hope that going forwards, I would hope that I I want to try and work hard at being someone who is able to talk successfully. Younger children and grandchildren. And and if I don't have any grand, I mean, I can't assume I have any grandchildren. Why would I assume that? Uh, but younger people. And I, I note with interest when I see it working. And I wonder why it works. And it's interesting. There's, It's not easy to do, but some people manage it wonderfully. And the onus is, of course, slightly on the older to make it work. Mm. You know, with 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 very very small kids, it's 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 not it's it's not so hard. But I think with older, you know, with teenagers, when when the the, the generations begin to divvy up and separate, um, then I think it takes quite a special person to be able to continue to be an older woman that the teenagers and young people really want to talk to. And I'd like to, that. That's what I'd like to be in the end. You know, that sounds very fine. And where where are you now in menopause, past menopause? Oh, right in the right in the kind of right I'd in the say, right part in, of it. I think I'm probably in the sort of heading up to the sort of the peak of the ranges, but not in the foothills. <laughs> you know, yeah. And how uh, is it? How is it going through that with kids that are what teenagers now, early yeah. teens? Yeah. Yeah. Of course, most women, well, not most women, I suppose, increasingly fewer women probably as people have kids later. But generally speaking, you kind of assume that the kids have gone by the time menopause comes along, but clearly not for you. Has that had its own particular challenges? Yes. And I think as people have children later, I think it's much more common that the kind of the teens and the menopause collide and um, 
as indeed does the then caring for older relatives collide. So I think it's a sort of interesting um, collection of life events going on all at once. How have I found it? Well, you know, I don't I don't like the physical symptoms particularly, frankly, and I particularly <laughs> I feel quite resentful about the kind of sleep disruption or about the kind of, you know, the night sweats. At the beginning, I felt it sort of it felt a little bit familiar with other upheavals like pregnancy. You know, um, you, you have hormonal upheavals. And I thought, oh, OK, yeah, no, I, I get this. It's a hormonal upheaval. But um, it goes on, you know, and that's not easy. <laughs> it um, does go on. Not yeah. that I want to depress you, but. <laughs> yeah. And I'm not I'm not averse to some medical help, um, but I am also aware I don't, from my sort of experience and from sort of shared friendships and that kind of thing, you know, that, 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 that's not quite the solution either anyway. I mean, it's it's sort of part of a solution. Perhaps there isn't a solution, really. It's a, it's a point of um, living well with it. And it may be part of living well with it, but it's not the only part of living well with it. And certainly, you know, hormones change. So, you know, taking a medical approach isn't going to be a one-stop shop either. And I reckon, what do I think? I think that it is a point at which to try and listen very hard to your body and to perhaps have a little respect for what its capacity is at the moment. And that when I say body, I also mean head. <laughs> <laughs> I, I don't, you know, I do, words do sometimes sort of swim away from one. And I realise I've become a, a sort of seem very vague at points, I think, to particularly to the teenagers. And it's not vagueness, it's just that the words are a bit sort of, the words aren't always quite as quick to come back. Uh, <laughs> and I think you perhaps have to just respect that and allow a little bit more space for things. I'm trying to leave a little more space for, you know, having always been a last minute late person, I'm trying to just sort of leave a little bit more space for the trains as well as the words and the and for the amount of things that can be achieved, which I think probably doesn't make you less effective. I think multitasking was always a bit of a myth anyway. Yeah, I wish it had been. Yeah, I certainly can't do that very much anymore, interestingly. I like to be really, really focused in on one thing and there is a real pleasure. Crap. It's a yeah. crap. And I think there's a point at which women are probably really good at it, at that kind of all-round, multiple, massive mind map thinking and of holding it all in their head. But I think there's a point at which I don't think that's sustainable. So I think there are certain points at which one has to do it and one's possibly better at it when one's younger, but I'm not sure ultimately it's sustainable or indeed the only way to do it. Because after all, let's be massively stereotypical here make massive generalizations and men are pretty rubbish at it and it's not held them so you know <laughs> I like that but really in a sense you know I talk a lot in the book about the, the importance of trying to slow down in some ways I mean not necessarily running off into the blue yonder giving up your job and fleeing the family and what have you at menopause but building in time to actually let those changes occur and yet in a, in a way you seem to be the kind of classic, you're still bringing up a family, you're running a really big business all the while that these changes are going on, uh, not even in the background, but, you know, front and centre of your life. Is is it a challenge? Yeah. Do you sometimes wish you could run away into the woods? 
Well, I do every every day with the dogs. <laughs> <laughs> well, there you go. That's your that's your solution to that. If solution is the right oh, word. Well, I mean, um, yeah, interestingly, we didn't get the dogs or the dogger first until I got made redundant, and then I said, okay, now I can, because. Well, I didn't know whether I was going to go and get another job or what was going to happen, but it was a space at which point I thought, right, here's a, here's a gap, here's a moment. And I like having an animal in the house had always been, um, it was a big moment when we got a pet when I was um, 13 and it, it always sort of felt really, it had felt very important and being able to bring an animal into the house again was a good moment. And I also sensed that it would be a way in which to make sure I could go out for a walk every day I don't think I said we're allowed to get one because I'm going to you know but, <laughs> and uh you know we, we've moved since then but it it didn't really matter what to be honest with you, it didn't really matter whether it was a park or whether it was woods or whether where it was or even whether it was you know choosing the nice street to walk down it was about a bit of space a bit of headspace um yes so those hours taken out to be outside with with the dog are a luxury and yet they feel quite important you know they feel, mm. feel like a necessary luxury to me and I would be very sorry to lose them yeah yeah they they, they give they just just I start off often a bit cross and by the end of it a bit I'm a bit less cross I'm a little bit more ready to I can do this. And even if the whole thing feels a bit overwhelming today, I can find a place to start. And that's often important, isn't it? It's okay. Mm. I, can't, I can't. Where where do I start then? Yeah. What can I start with today? Um, and even if this isn't the day where I solve the really naughty problem, today could be the day I solve the boring, easy problems. <laughs> and finally, the inevitable end of the journey through elderhood being death. How does how do you feel about death? What does death mean to you? Do you do you see death as a as a figure, like I do? But then I see everything as a figure, or do yeah. you just see it as a process that doesn't actually have a very clear kind of image for you? It doesn't have a particularly clear image, and I think in my mind it's often been caught up with a question of faith, and it's been caught up with a, a a sort of journey I mean I, I went through a very my teen years went through a very religious patch it was quite intense it didn't last for longer than a couple of years but so that question about death is quite caught up with that ultimately I I returned to sort of the sort of rituals of um, the Christian faith as a sort of framework to mark time and events now for me that's what it is I also love the language and actually quite often the buildings but faith is something much more mysterious and diffuse than 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 a, than a sort of bible-based belief system for me now and it's the stories the storytelling within the faiths that are often the most interesting and useful the way the stories are told and what the stories are up to I'm also, of course, one's thinking about death is very influenced by the deaths of others that one's experienced. And if I think of it of anything, I think of it as hopefully a matter of falling asleep. I I have hopes like we all do, but I try not to hold too tightly onto things like I try not to hold too tightly onto onto expectations or needs or or 
fear of losing my marbles. I try not to sort of worry about that too much. Um, I would hope to have a sense of being surrounded by people I love. But the people who I've watched die weren't always in happy places. You know, my parents didn't necessarily, well, they didn't, they weren't particularly <laughs> happy at the point at which they, they, they died. And I suppose that's influenced me a little bit. Neither of them lived quite long enough either. So, I, yes, I'm not sure that's exactly an answer, Sharon, but. Well, it is an answer. It's your answer. That's very fine. Um, <laughs> it's 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 one of those things that I think possibly as, as you get older, you probably start to think about a little bit differently. I, I, you know, in my 50s, I don't know what I would have said, really, if somebody had said, well, what do you think about death? They're just like, well, it's going to happen. <laughs> and nothing very more profound than that. So I think, you know, my own perspective on it comes very much from having had lymphoma last year and just having, you know, being faced with it directly. But then I had never had anybody very, very close to me die either. So whereas you have, so, you know, I don't know, but it'll be interesting to circle back in 10 years time and, and ask you. Wouldn't it wonderful to be like Helen Dunmore, who was able to write poetry until you know a few days before her death yeah she yeah that was amazing i remember that now yeah yeah i do um and i think she there was i remember reading that her maybe i might be wrong on this i think it was her editor who read the poem that she'd most recently written before she died he read it back to her a couple of days before she died and mm. i remember when my mother died my mother was an artist and i remember when she was in the hospital shortly before she died, she was keen to some of, see some of the most recent work she'd done. And she'd been painting up until two weeks before she died. And they got smaller, the work, as she got physically more frail. So actually, it was possible to show her some of the watercolours she'd done before she died. And she oh. satisfaction from that. And I think that's interesting, the idea of... I guess I'd like to leave something behind and you don't know what that will be, do you? What that might be. I th I think obviously you've got your books and the number of people that you your writing has touched. Um, but for some people, it won't be quite as clear cut as that, what they leave behind. No, but I've often thought that for people who do have children, which I don't, that maybe that, you know, I'm not saying that that is the epitome of their lives, but but they have something very tangible to leave behind have a hand to hold hopefully yes mm -hmm. but but actually you know it was interesting my it soothed my mother to be able to see the last thing that she had painted and that she produced something beautiful right. and it right. is quite and it's in you know the last watercolor she did is pretty incandescent it's wonderful but um so that that was about things that you came from within you so it isn't necessarily about a, a, a relationship yeah my grandmother was a housewife. She had rather an extraordinary story, but she was a housewife, but she was a very stylish one. And <laughs> I still wear quite a few of her clothes, even though she died when I was 18, so decades ago. Wow. Um, but she had really good dresses. She'd have them made by a dressmaker in Bournemouth. And she had very good dresses. And they still work even now, the dresses. They're kind of classic, but she had a good eye for a print and tailoring. And I still wear them. And I don't think, she, I think she'd have been very surprised to know that actually my gra she gets talked about a lot because I, I still wear some of those dresses and people go, oh, nice dress, where's that from? 
and she gets talked about a lot. So you never know what will last of you. But she that was one of her specialities. It was one of her things, you know. So maybe that's also something to take with one into the sort of further reaches. Uh, she never gave up that desire to, 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 to create and have made and to work with a dressmaker to make a beautiful dress. What a very wonderful story and a perfect one to end on. So thanks so much, Hannah, for being part of the podcast. And anyone who is more interested in what September is publishing can go to the website, which is septemberpublishing.org. Thank you for listening to this episode of the Haggitude Sessions. Please think about writing a review on Apple Podcasts and sharing this episode with your friends. And if you'd like to find out more about Haggitude, the book, and the membership program, please visit haggitude.org.